So Shipper B will disrupt the courier industry. We take the traditional hub and spoke, which causes parcels to move a lot further than they otherwise would. To ship a parcel from New York to New Jersey goes New York to Memphis to New Jersey. Very, very inefficient. Growth Magic is a podcast exploring the techniques of exceptional leaders and how they weave together ingenuity, intent and serendipity to realise big things. We invite storytellers from business, champions of impact, fast growth, entrepreneurs and executives of major change to reveal their secrets and share their vision for the new world. I'm Hugh Evans. And I'm Liz Wise. And today we're joined by serial entrepreneur and quite possibly my favourite Canadian, Jim Estel. I think the best word to describe Jim is prolific. As one of Canada's top 40 under 40, he was a founding board member of Research Emotion, who are the creators of BlackBerry. Jim's first business was EMJ Data Systems, which listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. He went on to build Daisy Tech to 350 million in revenues, and while at the helm of Synex, he took them from 800 million to $2 billion in sales. Jim's not a guy to sit on his hands, and he's in the driving seat of Toronto's most exciting new startup, Shipper B. Uh, so, Jim, what's life like in your neck of the woods at the moment? Well, we're opening up, they call it phase three, so they're starting to consider sending some of the kids back to school. They're starting to consider social distance restaurant opening, um, but it's still not like the good old days. And... Uh, I'm actually doing a lot of work at home, which is something I thought I would never do. I thought I was a wander around the office, eating lunchroom type guy. But uh, most of the people who can do office jobs do office jobs and do, it at, do them at home. So that's the way it is here. And, and so tell us a bit about uh, Shipper B. Um, so Shipper B will disrupt the courier industry. We take the traditional hub and spoke, which causes parcels to move a lot further than they otherwise would. To ship a parcel from New York to New Jersey goes New York to Memphis to New Jersey. Very, very inefficient and make them go more or less straight line. And the way we do that is by a network of, we call them hives, which are mini hubs. So rather than having less hubs, we have thousands of hubs and uh, parcels can more or less go straight line. So it's sort of like the internet is. The internet is a series of nodes. We are a series of nodes, and that's how we disrupt the parcel industry. Brilliant. And what's your, uh, what's your current scope for Shipper B? Like, what's your uh, coverage? Uh, are, you, are you just in Canada at the moment? Are you across, across North America? Currently, we're just in Canada and just in actually one province in Canada. Um, the happens to be the most populated province. So I'm not going to say we're in beta. We're shipping thousands of parcels per day, but we are uh, just rolling out in Canada. That The parcel industry has interesting waves. So a huge percentage of the parcels are delivered in November, December for Christmas, basically. And so we are preparing for the Canadian wave coming through this year, and then we're going to do be prepared for the American wave going through next year. And the way we're handling um, other markets is through licensees. So licensees will roll out in other, uh, in other geographies um, because they can basically ride on the technology we already have. We already have the technology to do all the sorting and do the, uh, the node hubs instead of doing a uh, big, big sort hub. And it's, uh, that's the beauty of technology and software is, uh, you know, I can just do another copy for Australia or the UK or any other market, but I do need entrepreneurs on the ground because there's a lot to it to make it work. 
Yeah, for sure. Actually, really interestingly, uh, in Australia, where I'm uh, in lockdown at the moment in Melbourne, believe it or not, we're allowed out one hour a day wow. for wow. exercise. Like it's it's that it's it's like being under house arrest as a political activist or something like that. Uh, and uh, but what, interestingly, here in Melbourne, we just had uh, uh, I think the record number of parcels delivered by Australia Post. Uh, oh only, yeah, I think, oh, and, and that was on a Monday, you know, oh. with Christmas and you know of all time. Oh, the, the growth in the parcel industry is massive. It's so fast. It used to be the stat was 20% per year, but that was pre-COVID. Now it's way more than that. The bottom line is there's not the capacity in the industry to handle the parcels that need to be delivered. And it's creating a lot of traffic problems and, uh, and whatnot, which means a company like ShipperBee, we can, we can sort of slide in and do 1% of the increase in parcel volume and still be a billion-dollar company in four years. Just that's 1% of the increase. That's not 1% of the parcel volume. So there's lots of business for, for everybody. And if there's another uh, courier listening, I, they'll do well too. Like it, it's just the way it is. Yeah, really interesting. You know, we're, our business is a business design firm. And, and so we look at a business through many different lenses. And one of those is uh, looking at the architecture of the, of the value proposition and, and how that gets delivered and what are the impediments to growth that you need to overcome and what are those accelerators to growth you need to engage? And when I was when I was contemplating the Shipper B business model, I was thinking, you know, um, any two sided business model needs um, both sides of the market to sort of increase at a, at a similar rate for it to function effectively. If you think of Uber, you need the people on the on the you know in the cars uh, on the street, uh, and then the people you know in the houses or in, in those locations for the pickup, and they the demand and supply needs to have some level of matching for that system to work. Um, when you're rolling that out in a sort of replicated cellular model um, across, you know, as an expansion strategy, I can imagine that that would be quite a challenge. I'm really curious to understand your strategy around scaling and, and even what is your ambition and, and, and uh, hope for the scale of the business? Is it a global business that you're looking so, to, to create? This is uh, a global business on the scale of Uber or Airbnb. We will disrupt the courier industry just like uh, Uber did to the taxi industry. You are absolutely right. When you have a two-sided marketplace, you need to solve one of those sides. If you solve one of those sides, you can handle the other side. And so what, the side that we can solve is the driver side. The ultimate model is a gig economy. But let's say we don't have enough gig economy people sign up to deliver parcels. And the reason they would want to deliver parcels is actually Uber business in Canada or North America is actually down right now. So the drivers that drove for Uber and Lyft are looking for other gigs. Um, their model is dependent on unpaid driver waiting time. And so um, ours, as you say, you want to drive for three hours, you actually drive for three hours. You're not saying, I'll sit around for four hours and hope that I get a few fares. But um, the part that we can solve is we can actually hire people full-time and pay them a, a salary to solve the driver end of it. So if we closed a, a um, parcel delivery and the, and the company says, oh, we've got 10,000 parcels a day, that's... E fairly easily solved because right now, unfortunately, in North America, there are quite a few unemployed people and uh, it's fairly easy to hire people if you offer them a job. Longer term, though, to get the savings that our system will have, we do want to run this with largely gig economy people. Right. And I noticed in the, uh, in the Hive, the Hive is quite a tech, you know, it's a bulletproof, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, receptacle, if you like. You can have 60 packages of various shapes and sizes. It's Wi-Fi enabled. It's got, it's got a camera on board. Um, I can imagine one of the concerns or the needs is ensuring that that parcel gets from point A to point B securely. Uh, and uh, how do you how do you deal with that? Like how, how do you how do you um, clearly that there must be effective vetting uh, techniques on the on the driver side, and and you can also track that parcel along the journey. Is that right? That's exactly right. So we um, do the same background check that FedEx or UPS would do with for the driver. So we do the you know the background check to make sure you're hiring good people. We do video interviews with people, so we actually don't just hire anyone off the street. We do the proper interviews. Um, and then we do driver ratings. And it's been shown that driver ratings improve the quality of the drivers, just like Uber does, which is why the Uber drivers are actually pretty polite and they're pretty good, where the taxi drivers, they didn't get rated. Um, and so we can um, track the number of perfect deliveries a driver does. We ease them into it so we don't give them uh, 100 parcels the first day they start. And, uh, but uh, absolutely, you're right, security of parcels. The hives, as you say, have camera. We also have two-way voice. Um, everything's barcoded, so we, you know, the drivers scan it with their phone and uh, and whatnot. So we track, and we can actually track real time. You can see the parcel moving down a, an interstate at any time or where where it's located. Yeah, so it sounds like um, you've got the the raw elements of of a very trusted uh, execution uh, of the of the proposition. And you know, my observation. Uh, when I've reflected on Uber, I think U Uber made a big misstep in terms of its um, its brand uh, trust. You know, people broadly believe that Uber's just looking after Uber. They're not looking after the drivers. They're not looking after the cities that they're operating within. They're not looking after necessarily even the customers who are in the car. And when uh, Tra Travis Kalanick got into that situation that eventually led to his departure, there wasn't that sense of goodwill inside the business or outside of the business about the business that they were creating. And when I talk to my team about that, I sort of say, you know, brand trust is a very important thing. The, the people inside your business need to believe what you're saying as much as what the people outside of the business uh, are, are, are um, you know, buying into. And uh, it seems that you've got those raw materials. Is that sort of similar to the way that you think and how you've set this up? It's exactly the way I think. I actually want us to be good to our people and good to our customers. And uh, I honestly believe our driver job is a great job because you don't actually have to drive during rush hour. You don't have to drive till 2 o'clock in the morning. Uber, you have to drive till 2 o'clock in the morning when the bars get out. That's when you get most of your fares. And you don't have to have someone in your car. And... When you say you want to drive for three hours, you drive for three hours. You're not, we're, we're not dependent on unpaid driver wait time. So I think it can be a much better gig for the drivers. And part of our system and part of the reason we're able to save 73.1% of the greenhouse gas is we use the power of while. So North America is set up with interstates connecting all cities. So to have a parcel go from one city to the next, a driver who's already going there just logs onto their phone and says, I'm already going. He says, well, pick up at the gas station as you're entering the interstate. Drop off at the gas station where you're exiting the interstate. The key on a commuter driver or a driver who's driving anyways is they don't want to spend any extra time. They want to they, they're not going out of the way. They're not driving into the subdivision or trying to deliver to an apartment or deliver to a business. They're only just dropping hive to hive. But that greenhouse gas is already spent. They're already driving. And I'm sure in Australia or everywhere, if you look at the traffic, there is a continuous flow of cars 
that have back seats and trunks empty that could easily carry uh, um, parcels. So that's part of the key to our greenhouse gas. And part of the key, um, when we did a survey of uh, people who commute more than half an hour each way to work, 84% of them said they would carry parcels if they got paid for gas. And uh, it, it, it's extremely win-win. Like people make a few dollars for doing something they're going to do anyways, and we can pay actually a very good dollar. Um, we actually pay $60 an hour for time out of your way, not for the time you're commuting, but for the, you know, if you're going to take three minutes to, to pick it up from the gas station and three minutes to drop it off, you get paid $60 an hour for that time. And I did notice in your literature that uh, transport, transportation accounts for 1.8 million metric tonnes of emissions, and 23% of these emissions come from delivery trucks. So this, is, this has a really meaningful impact on that, um, that situation, yeah? Absolutely. This can be my environmental legacy. This is, as a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons I, I'm doing it. And it goes back to the culture. I mean, everybody wants to work for a company that saves the world. I mean, this is... This is helping the world and saving the world. You should feel a little guilty when you're driving like, because you're burning greenhouse gas. Well, when you're carrying a few parcels, at least you're doing two things at once and you're taking trucks off the road. It means there's less wear on the road, means there's less traffic. So it's really a, um, a, a triple win. I was just going to ask, you know, we, we, we're talking about environmental sustainability. And so I'm curious about how the packaging rationale comes into this. I mean, it's fantastic to, to be able to reduce emissions. Is there a sustainability element that you're looking at in terms of how packages are actually packaged up? So we're shipping for companies and right. companies can package in whatever they want. Ultimately, sure. I think the world should end, end up with a round trip packages where they're in plastic mm -hmm. boxes that you send the boxes back. But that is not the system we're trying to solve. We're, what sure. we're solving, we're saying, what's the greenhouse gas emission of the actual delivery? The packaging mm -hmm. is another story. Now, one other uh, unintended consequence of our system, I, we actually get less shipping damage. And the reason you get less shipping damage is you're not going through conveyors. You're not being thrown into a truck. You're being put into someone's personal car. So by nature, there's a little bit more white glove. People don't throw things when it's in their car. And uh, so that could mean there could be a little less packaging possibly needed. But pa your packaging point is a really good point. Um, we're generating tons of packaging. Uh, I, I sort of look at, okay, we, I can't stop the number of parcels being sold. What we really should be doing is stopping consumerism. We should not buy as much, and we sure as heck shouldn't buy as much online. It wouldn't generate as much. But I don't think I can solve that one. So given the world the way it is, I can solve my little piece, which is the greenhouse gas on the parcels. So I'd love to jump into your entrepreneurial mind for a second, Jim. You, um, your story is pretty amazing, uh, having essentially started up your first business after college, and you took that from zero through a series of acquisitions and businesses uh, to a $2 billion revenue uh, portfolio and uh, you know that that's uh, obviously an incredible uh, uh, story that I think could could warrant many uh, podcast episodes but uh, I'm curious to understand from a shipper B perspective somebody with that type of background coming into a startup and uh, raising 19 million of capital setting it up in, and and essentially running the the alpha and the beta uh, locally in Canada ready for a, a global scale ambition what do you lean on in terms of your design process to think about how you set up this business and how you execute it in, at a rate that would satisfy um, you 
you know, in terms of your expectations of, the, of, of success with this thing? So the reason I talk so freely about what our model is, is ideas are a dime a dozen. It's all about the implementation. And growing my first business to $2 billion and being one of the founding board members of BlackBerry, where when they had 200 employees and stayed with them until they had 18,000 employees, I've seen how to scale companies and I have the experience to scale companies. Because otherwise, you're, you get an entrepreneur on, makes a bold statement, we're going to disrupt couriers as we know it, we're going to do to uh, couriers what Uber did to taxi. That's almost too bold of a statement. But to some extent, I've done that and, and uh, grown it. Um, I look in terms of uh, the team and the people, and I always think scalability. I always think scalability of myself. When I was running a $100 million company, I'd look at people doing 200 million and say, how, how, what am I going to have to change? To, how do I get to 200 million? When I'm doing 200 million, I look to a billion. When I'm doing a billion, I look for two billion. So I always look, what is the next step? And, and my trick is actually, usually it's not things that you're going to do. Usually it's what are you going to stop doing as the leader to get to the next, to get to the billion dollars. It, it usually isn't adding more to your plate. It's usually taking off some some. And when you take things off, it means you need other people to, uh, um, to do that. Oh, that's embarrassing. No, that's a hazard <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> so, so, okay. And um, further to that, I guess the, I, I've often said that uh, I've noticed that the leaders that I deal with in, in our business and across our clientele, that, that, uh, when a new CEO starts in a, in, a, in a big business, the first thing they do is they hire their leadership team. You know, they kind of clean out the, the, the existing team. They bring in their crew because their crew are trusted people, often that they've known for 10, 15 years. Uh, and and they, you know, a CEO is often, you know, 20, 30, 50 people. Right. You know, that they, that they lean on to get things done. Um, have you got a crew like that that you've taken along the journey with you and and what are the, if, if so, what do they look well, like? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, see, that's the beauty also of a startup. I'm not coming in and replacing people. I'm saying, oh, Ian, you worked with me in this company. Let's come to this new company and do, and do it again. So, you're I'm, uh, yes, I can absolutely hire known entities that we've worked with in the past, and I know their capability, and they know how to work together. They, they communicate well together. Um, uh, in business, you need to handle three things. You need to handle the sales and marketing. How are you going to sell product uh, and whatnot? You need to handle the business. Are you going to make money? How do you track it um, and the financials? And you need to handle the technology. And that is, you know, does, does the technology work to have the uh, parcels move hive to hive? So those are the three areas that I broadly think of of covering. And you correctly nailed it earlier. It is a two-sided marketplace. So you need, uh, in our business, our director of driver happiness and driver recruitment is a, a big integral part because that's one piece of the two-sided marketplace. Yeah, it makes sense. It's actually, that's incredible symmetry there, um, probably without you knowing it. Um, in our, uh, we, we've been developing a methodology for how you design a business for about uh, 19 years. And uh, we started our life as a technology transformation business. So we started in kind of the black box that very few people understand. And we work from there out into the rest of the organisation to understand how to piece together all the different parts of an organisation and how it needs to work. And what we've landed on with our business design method is, broadly speaking, we look at a service, like you've got to anchor your decisions on something when you make decisions in the business. And one of the problems is you need to remove, remove noise, just like you said, 
you know, what, what are the things I need to stop doing? You know, what are the things we need to stop talking about? Because we need to focus on the thing, on the prize here. And uh, and what we've discovered is is that there are essentially a business is made up of a service stack. There are services to customers. There are service, business services to each other to deliver that service to the customer. And there are technology services that enable those two. And that if you can get that service stack of technology, business, and customer services harmonised with an operating model and a service model that have the right sort of uh, dialogue and that are in tune, you typically are running a business that is in tune. Um, is uh, you know, with your background with organisation like Research in Mo Research Research in Motion uh, and BlackBerry, um, have you tapped into any particular management practices or disciplines that you just like lean on or, or buy into that you know reflect that type of thinking? Uh, well, partly pulling on the technology end of it is I believe in speed, I believe in scrum, and I believe in communication and keep the pace. One of the things I say is fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. So we try a lot of things. So lean startup, right? Lean, it's it, right. Lean startup. Um, on the fail often, fail fast, fail cheap, I also am a big believer in A-B testing. So we'll try in this little market, we're going to try running it this way, and we'll try in another market, do it that way, and you're going to say, oh, it's better to scan the barcode first instead of last and whatnot. So we A-B test a lot of things um, while we're going. So there's some uh, experiment going on. Um, one of my uh, favorite books is Michael Gerber's E-Myth, and... Uh, it is on, uh, basically, he talks about um, documenting all the process. So life is all about process. And uh, our job is to hire average people, make them above average by having better systems, process, training, coaching, mentoring. And uh, if you have the systems, then you can put, that's the way to scale. Because you're going to have, you know, 10,000 drivers. You, you can't say, okay, you know, each one's not unique. It's like, how do we get it so that all the drivers are trained? And what are all the, how do you deal with each eventuality? So it's all about documentation, process, and method. Yeah, we talked a bit about uh, scaling uh, earlier on. And, uh, you know, with this sort of scaling challenge to go internationally, to go global, uh, what is it that uh, you think is going to unlock that for you? Like, what, what's, the, what's the strategy? Uh, so what I need in other markets other than Canada and the United States is uh, I will, you need an entrepreneur who is willing to do the execution and talking of your services, the services that we would deliver then is the technology. So you've got the technology that works, but the services that the entrepreneur needs to deliver would be the sales, the marketing, the, uh, you know, the accounting, the business, um, the hiring of the drivers. Um, and, and so the entrepreneur that I would work with in each one of the markets has to handle their part of the market. Now, to some extent, there will be slight differences sometimes in one market or another, and therefore you may have to adopt the technology. But uh, you've just taken one piece of it off of the entrepreneur you're licensing to. Right. There'll be a bunch of CEOs listening to this, Jim. So um, if, you wanna, if, if, if they're interested in getting on board, mate... Um, uh, should they just come reach out to you directly, or what's the how do how do they find you? They should absolutely reach out uh, directly. I will say this is not for the faint of heart. This is not a low investment business. This is a full time business. This is a um, it, even it, it's not that simple. I mean, it it is aggressive, aggressive. And even if you go into a tiny market, you're still talking a thousand drivers. Um, you're still talking. Uh, 
few hundred hives. Like the smallest market would be thousand hives, right? That's a lot of parcels. Uh, it it is. Well, it is. That's a lot. A lot yeah. of hives to manage uh, as well. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that um, the other area that that struck me when I when I thought about your business model was the um, the, the difference between a uh, parcel fulfillment. Uh, service and and this more real time stuff that's going on around the network with um, uh, say Uber. You know, you look at their their expansion into Uber Eats and you know various forms of delivery. We're in a delivery economy at the moment. You know, with the the restrictions that everybody's under and and uh, can you see anybody in the landscape that's sort of trying to do something similar to what you're doing but doing it a bit differently? And 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 do you sort of see what what your competitive edge is on that? Oh sure. I mean I. I- I've seen a lot of people doing a lot of delivery business. The key is knowing what is our niche. So uh, the uh, Uber Eats and uh, whatnot, point-to-point delivery, that is a different service. Some people need you to pick up the point. Like, if I'm waiting for my dinner, you have to pick it up and deliver it 20 minutes later. You can't pick it up and deliver it the next day. So we know exactly the parcels that we're good at and how we're good at doing it. Most of the parcels that we carry would be um, your T-shirt and your shoes and your uh, headset and your, um, you, you know, your uh, .com purchases um, that currently are moved hub and spoke through the major couriers like FedEx and UPS. And the growth through that is so high that they can't even handle the volume. So in a way, they actually welcome someone to take some of the volume because everybody likes to have perfect uh, delivery and... Uh, and, and they just can't. Nobody can handle the volume. It's just growing so rapidly. Yeah, we um, we also talked about uh, Danby, and uh, Danby makes uh, bar fridges, among other things. And and I I believe you service the hotel industry, and that's taken a big shock under these conditions. Uh, how, how have you responded to that situation? Well, what happened to Danby? You're right. We sell a lot to hotels. That business drops off, but everybody is eating more at home. So the business through retail, selling through Costco and Home Depot and uh, Lowe's and stuff, picks up. So people are buying more refrigerators for home use. And we also have a very large freezer business. And freezer has all of a sudden become a shortage product. It's almost like toilet paper. You can't make enough of them. So you pick up on one hand and it uh, goes down on, on another hand. But it's, it all goes back to what I was saying. If there's a COVID uh, economy and there's a post-COVID economy, what's it going to look like? As an entrepreneur, you just have to figure out. And if one of your sectors is going to be weak, how do you redeploy those resources into other sectors that will be strong. And if you think about it, food storage and refrigeration, secondary refrigeration, which is a lot of what we sell, it is through the roof. A lot of people in North America particularly only want to shop every two weeks. They don't want to shop every week. Uh, it used to be a lot of people would stop in twice a week to the grocery store to pick something up. Now it's no, it's, uh, I'm not going out. Um, and the same thing is true of uh, the freezer. People say, no, I, I used to eat out a lot, but now I'm going to eat my prepared frozen food because it's uh, there. People still don't want to do the food preparation. Or if you go into the grocery store early on in the pandemic, you go into the grocery store and there'd be no meat in the shelves. Like it, it was basically they hadn't figured out the uh, supply chain and people were paranoid and said, oh, I better have that myself. You know, you know, one thing that strikes me, Jim, uh, I've, I've had a number of uh, different calls today uh, for different reasons. And one of them was actually a, a call with a bunch of CEOs across Australia, and um, you know, there's, I've kind of switched off the news over the last uh, month or two because I'm just sick of hearing the the negative stories. And one thing that I found incredibly energising is the um, excitement about the possibilities of adjusting to 
the situation at hand that I experience when I interact with the different entrepreneurs and CEOs out in the industry. And, uh, you know, you're no exception. You know, this is, uh, you know, your energy, your enthusiasm, your resilience, your creativity uh, is just uh, infectious. And um, I'm really, really grateful for the time you've spent with us today. Um, is there anything uh, uh, perhaps in closing that uh, uh, you might like to share in terms of predictions? Uh, what, what, are, what are we expecting to see uh, next year, do you think? So uh, uh, if I were to predict COVID, I actually believe we're still going to just, it's an entrepreneur's dream. And so the businesses today won't be the businesses tomorrow, but there will be lots of businesses tomorrow. And uh, the other thing I'll leave you with is it's never as bleak as it appears at the time. These are the good old days. We will look back at these at the good old days. That's the good old days. That's a brilliant note to finish on, Jim. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, guys, and a special thanks to Liz Wise, our producer, and Mike Rishworth, our sound engineer. Please do stay in touch by subscribing at growthmagic.fm. Next podcast, you're going to hear about Rodrigo Baggio, who's based in Brazil, and what he's done to bridge the digital divide, bringing impact to 1.7 million young people worldwide. What's amazing about this particular podcast are the stories that he tells about drugs and violence in the favelas and what he's done to bring digital capabilities to these communities to bring them into a new reality. Until then, stay safe.